Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, hey, y'all. How's it going out there? Oh, my goodness. Well, if you can tell by my voice, uh, I am uh, I'm a little under the weather right now. <laughs> and so I am not going to waste a lot of time talking here, introducing our very, very uh, great guest uh, this week here. I'm going to get right to it. And, and honestly, I sound way worse than I actually feel. I started getting a sore throat like on Friday and then completely lost my voice um, on Saturday it started coming back a little bit here. And, uh, you know, this is kind of what I have now, but you know, the show must go on. And so (laughs) my voice is, is, it's, it's coming back bit by bit. I was really struggling to talk yesterday. So I was like, oh man, I don't even know how I'm going to record and set up the uh, podcast for this week. But lo and behold, it appeared magically and, you know, Advil helps. And so does, uh, uh, what is that stuff called? The, uh, not halls, but, um, Recora. There you go. So, um, quick introduction this week. I just wanted to set up my, um, my guest this week. Uh, she's an amazing, uh, film. Uh, well, she is a producer, actually. She's a director, producer, writer, uh, Linda Midget. Uh, she has supervised and created more than 600 hours of programming for networker networks, including NBC universal history channel, discovery, A&E PBS and speed. Her series credits include Gangland, okay, if you've never seen that, it's on Annie. Starting Over, she got three Emmys for that. Neil Bailey Rides, I'm not sure about that one, Peru, uh, and FBI, A Criminal Pursuit. She's also produced several award-winning documentaries, including The Line, The Greek Americans, uh, and Through My Eyes. We're going to be actually be talking about um, her latest work. Same God, which is a documentary on Larisha Hawkins. If you don't know who Larisha Hawkins is, in fact, this week is the, uh, what is it, four-year, five-year anniversary um, of her. She was a professor uh, at uh, Wheaton College of Political Science, and she uh, wore her job in solidarity, and, uh, you know, all hell broke loose. (laughs) So um, this is a documentary on her looking particularly at uh, evangelicals and their love for Trump and just uh, just the continued hate uh, for anything that doesn't fit under a white Christian evangelical lens. And so this is, is a great documentary. I'm ho- I'm hoping to have this thing screened here in Chicago at some point. Um, 
But um, she is screening it around the country, and I believe it's supposed to be out on PBS, uh, but it's coming. It's Same God. And, of course, as always, I'll put all these links in the show notes, whitehodpodcast.com, whitehodgepodcast.com, and um, you can go and check those out there. Um, but, uh, yeah, December 10th, it's four-year anniversary when, again, Dr. Hawkins wore the hijab, and, um, like I said, all hell broke loose. And so I had a chance to sit down with Linda and talk about her life and like what got her into this, you know, particularly folks who do uh, uh, um, uh, documentaries. Um, they, you know, there's some interesting folks and not that other directors and writers aren't, uh, but, you know, to put together a, a it's it's a it's it's telling a story uh, in words and visions and in and uh, in, in, in looking at how those things come together. That's a that's a monumental feat rather than I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a monumental feat to put a, a fictional uh, a production together as well. Um, but, uh, this is a, this is a great time that her and I had in regards to this. So again, Linda Midget, she's talking about her new film, same God. It should be airing, uh, hopefully in your area. If not check your listings, I will put the links in the show notes to this. And again, this is on Larissa Hawkins, this amazing conversation and particularly at a time when my voice was at full strength. <laughs> so I'll go on and get a little bit better and quit, quit keep sucking on them, uh, uh, and them recorders. And, uh, I will see y'all next next week in the meantime enjoy this conversation between linda and i check it (laughs) (laughs) excellent excellent well linda thank you so much for taking the time out and coming on profane faith thank you thank you for having me i want to hop right into this this is this is deep um but for our listeners um because for those of you listening obviously we about to get into this this documentary that linda just put out but i want to know who linda is like why film? Like what, where, where, where did Linda come from? What's been happening from birth to now? (laughs) (laughs) A lot because I'm, I'm, I'm middle-aged. So yeah. (laughs) Well, Hey, you and me both. So I I feel that. We'll skip third grade. We'll hit the highlights. All right. All right. Sounds good. (laughs) Um, no, I, um, I grew up on the coast of North Carolina. I, um, grew up in a little coastal town. I have sort of an unusual heritage that's um, actually very tied to maritime. Uh, my father uh, is retired now, but he was a harbor pilot and brought big ships into the harbor. Um, Midget is an uncommon name, unless you are on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, in which case it's very common. Um, you'll see Midget Realty and, you know, Midget this, Midget that. Um, I am I am five nine, so I'm just addressing the elephant in the room here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I grew up there. Um, I actually went to Wheaton College. I'm an alumna, okay. and obviously that's where this particular film. Um, that's where a lot of the action took place. Um, so I graduated there in the early '90s, and have um, really had a long career in television for many years. I um, did a lot of uh, like work for History Channel and Discovery, um, Weather Channel, those guys. Um, I was the showrunner on a series called Gangland. Yeah. Um, you may be familiar with. Yeah. yeah. Really popular on History Channel. So I know... Um, I know an unusual amount of information about gangs. 
And yeah. we did 80 something episodes of that. Um, and then in recent years, I've um, transitioned more into documentary work, independent documentary work. Um, I've lived around the country in the meantime. I've lived in, I was in Chicago for many years, actually. And I lived in LA, spent about a decade in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then about four years ago, um, my husband took a job with LSU and um, we moved to Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So I'm a little bit displaced, I think, culturally. Um, I'm married to a guy from Louisiana, so I'm not that displaced. But, yeah, <laughs> this is like, you know, this is a different part of the country for me to be in. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So you've, yes. <laughs> Was that? <laughs> what was that? I said those are the highlights. So feel free to dig in wherever you want. No, to. no, no. That's that's good, and, and I, I I love that. And I'm and I, given that you are an alum of, of Wheaton, I'm, I'm curious, like, what years did you were you there, and what was the climate like, you know, at at Wheaton at that time? You know, I um, started attending Wheaton in 1988, um, so I arrived with a really big perm like a lot of other young women did and um, graduated in 92. So, okay. you know, it's interesting. The climate <laughs> probably in some ways, not all that different than it is now. Um, you know, I've been asked sometimes if people, if people think if like, if I think that Wheaton has changed since I attended I don't know that the school has changed a lot. I, I certainly have changed with my per perception of things. Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, I grew up in a very, um, I grew up in a very intense sort of evangelical, white evangelical milieu. Like that's my family. My, yeah. my, my parents started a non-denominational Bible church when I was, four or five years old. And so that's what I grew up with. And so when I went to Wheaton, it didn't feel very different than culturally than what I had grown up with. Okay. You know? So I, it's probably more in, in recent years that I have had eyes to see it differently, but I don't know that, you know, I think it was then like it is now it's always been predominantly white. Um, you had some, a lot of international students where you had people who were missionary kids, but the majority of the kids who came there were from more affluent families or upper middle class, um, you know, really bright, um, very strong academics and, um, you know, basically somewhat conservative. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What, um, so fast forwarding, we're, you know, looking at Lucia Hawkins, um, who I've had the pleasure of meeting, uh, only a couple times. I've, I've reached out to her a few times just to even just, you know, to get her on the show and, and, and to talk about it. I mean, I know she's busy and she's got all kind of good things, but why her, why this documentary, um, why? Why? I mean, I'm curious. I mean, I and, and granted, I'm glad. Does I mean, just let me just uh, preemptively say I'm glad this is out because this has actually been an ongoing conversation, even where I teach at um, here on the north side of, you know, what what does 
for example, what does academic freedom really look like, especially when you're tenured? But anyways, that we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But I'd be curious what what inspired you and what was what was it like to, you know, to go through the get this thing set up? Yeah, well, um, you know, what inspired me, it's funny because it was, I, I started working on the documentary at sort of the most inopportune time personally. We had just moved to Baton Rouge a couple months before. Um, the transition was really hard on me. It was hard on our kids. Um, mm. We had had a lot of a lot of just trauma sort of in our family with health issues and other things. So it just was not a great, it was not a great time. Um, but I had I happened to have more time on my hands, I think, because because I had no friends. So there was no really <laughs> <laughs> um and you know, I noticed on December 10th, you know, four years ago, it was just 2015. I noticed this little headline that said that Larisha was wearing a hijab in solidarity with Muslim women. And I, I looked at it and thought my initial response was, well, that's interesting. And then I thought about it and I was like, yeah, that's kind of a Jesus-y thing to do. Right. So. Yeah, right. 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 <laughs> my initial thought. And then I forgot about it. Like I really didn't think anything of it. And then about two days later, you know, all hell had broken loose and this had caused, um, was causing this major controversy. Um, and the controversy is really what drew me in. I became very fascinated by how people were so polarized on what she had done and their different responses to it, um, particularly yeah. with alumni, right? Because you had some alumni feeling like she's a heretic for saying that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. You had other alumni like me that were like, okay, like that's an interesting theological question, but I think the spirit of what she was doing is kind of clear, right? Mm, yeah. So, you know, and but it was such a, a massive split. And that, you know, I've, I, I, I've said this to people before, because it we live in so much polarization now. Yeah, I uh. think we forget that four years ago, it wasn't like this, right? Okay, it was striking. Now, I'm not saying that. And, and let me be clear, I'm not saying the dynamics weren't in play, that it didn't exist, but it was not out in the open quite in the way that it is now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, yeah. Was, it was percolating under the surface. You know, Donald Trump was not our president. Um, at the time, he was one of the Republican nominees, but that was it. Yeah. But the, the, the cultural conversation had taken a real shift. It was in the process of this big transition. So you had people in the far light, right, were sort of trying to outdo themselves in terms of who can be more, um, more rigid, I guess, when talking about immigrants and talking about Muslims, et cetera. I mean, it felt like every day people were outdoing each other. You know, it was a really big deal when Chris Christie said that he wouldn't let children, um, Muslim children into the country or children immigrants. You know what I mean? Like it was yeah. like, what? 
I mean, it was so extreme at the time. It was like, what is happening? So this sort of the, the extremism, the polarization that we now live in, um, it just hadn't exploded. The genie wasn't out of the bottle just yet. So this is a long setup to say that was the context. So when I was looking at what was happening with Larisha wearing this hijab, it was like, what on earth? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, people are like losing their minds. Like, right. why is this happening? <laughs> <laughs> right. I really genuinely, I didn't understand. And I was really curious about that. And eventually realized that um, I think a couple of weeks into it, I mean, I became very obsessed with the story and it's like a thriller, right? Because every day there was new information coming out, you know, Wheaton first, they, first they put her on, they suspended her and then they moved like right after Christmas to terminate her tenure and to terminate her employment, which was a shocking move. I mean, I, I remember like, I like almost fell out of my chair. It's like, oh my gosh, like it's right. Christmas and you're like, right. <laughs> you know, so, um, so all this to say, it was like a thriller watching it. So it was, and I'm not the only person that was completely fascinated by what was happening, but for me, I sensed that something much bigger than Wheaton was sort of playing out and was taking shape. And I don't know that I could have articulated it very well, but I really sensed that there is a big shift happening in the broader culture, but within evangelicalism specifically. Mm. And I really wanted to understand that. Um, so I, I've, you know, it's funny because a lot of people assume that the title same God, they assume the film is really about whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God. And that's true. There is, there is, you know, probably about 10 minutes of the film is devoted to that question and trying to unpack that a little bit. Mm -hmm. But the bigger question I was interested in and what really drew me into doing the film was the question of whether evangelicals worship the same God. Oh, all right. All right. <laughs> All right. So, okay. There's a lot. There's let me there's there's a lot there. So one of the things, I mean, so I mean and in force and foremost, I mean it, it, I I I don't. I mean and my listeners know this, but I, I don't, you know, identify as 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 a um, as an evangelical, um, and, uh, I've, you know, I've kind of lost all hope in the, you know, type of sect that it represents for Christianity and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, but that being said, uh, when we think about religion on the grand scheme of things and, you know, just the existence of, uh, you know, of, of the supernatural and whatnot, how, cause there's, there's, so there's two things here, right? And you're right. I mean, I remember thinking, when I saw this, I was like, man, who at Wheaton in their PR department, this was prior to the 2016, right? This is prior to Donald Trump winning. But I was like, mm -hmm. who in their PR department thought that was a great idea to, to, to fire, right? An ethnic minority, an ethnic minority woman who was tenured. And because we all saw it as like, okay, you can, we can have all the semantics we want, but it's like, you know, you, y'all fired, y'all fired this woman. Um, and so, and it created all this, you know, this, this kind of, this talk, but now we have this narrative, right? That they, they were trying to circle the wagons and whatnot, but now, now they're not. Um, where do you, where do you, and how do you see this like, like engaging with the current 
kind of mantra, if you will, that's particularly coming out of white evangelicals of like, hey, you know, our story's being erased and hey, you know, this is about the one true God and hey, you know, Donald Trump is our savior. We're bringing America back to its its roots of Christianity. How have you kind of, you know, seen some of that stuff play out? And I don't know, I know you've done some screenings and stuff like that, like, you know, any, any of the feedback? I don't, you know, I don't know if that question makes sense. I know that's a long drawn out there's a lot that we can tease out so (laughs) um so let me start with your first statement about this narrative um that white evangelicals that their story is being erased um i mean as somebody who was raised in the white evangelical tradition i can say really very definitively that is not the case (laughs) so let me disabuse anybody of that idea (laughs) um, suffering from thinking that um and i'll give you some real examples actually from taking the film out um you know we're going to be airing on pbs starting in um i think our first broadcast is in la like just november 21st and then over the next couple months on pbs affiliates around the country that have picked up the film will be airing it Um, But it's been a fascinating process taking the film to each individual station because the way that it's being distributed, the individual PBS affiliate has a chance. They have the opportunity to pick it up, but they don't have to. Right. Okay. Okay. So um, what we have found as we've approached various stations, quite often the feedback has been. This is a beautifully done film. It's very important, but we are afraid that it will anger our conservative Christian donors. Oh, wow. Them too. Oh, no. Them them too. Yes. I know liberal PBS, which is one of the, I'm like, PBS? (laughs) Oh, gee whiz. In some ways, but... um, Yeah. Yeah. But it's a shocking, um, it's actually shocked me. Um, you know, there have been people who have not, who are not planning to air it specifically because of their relationship with Wheaton. Okay. Wow. Okay. Um, and then I frequently run into even, um, you know, like ministries or organizations that are trying to promote interfaith dialogue or, um, you know, have evangelicals reaching out to Muslims, et cetera, they won't be associated with the film because it's too controversial and they don't want to anger their conservative Christian people that they're trying to work with. So the snapshot that I've gotten of our country is there are a lot of people who are very afraid of the power that white evangelicals have. Mm-hmm. And it some of them are Christians, other Christians who are afraid of it. Um, you know, I I have Catholics who are don't want to show the film because they don't want to hurt their relationship with conservative evangelicals. Um Muslim community. I mean, you name it, right? Yeah. So it's when the snapshot is of a group of people who somehow are holding on to a narrative of disenfranchisement while simultaneously having a phenomenal amount of power. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And that, I think that's, that's the thing that gets me. I mean, even, I mean, at the university that I'm at, I mean, that's, this, this, this is a struggle we're currently um, having. Current, currently having of, of, of Donald Trump. Um, now, you know, a lot of evangelicals will say that there's a lot of, there's a lot of conversation that I'm, I suspect you may follow, you know, like, well, are they really evangelicals? That the term evangelical has been sort of bastardized, right? So these aren't really evangelicals. Um, and I probably used to think that way, right? On, on some level, like, well, I kind of know what the difference is. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but at some point you, you have to say, well, if the branding is that easily thwarted, then maybe there's some truth to it, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. So, you know. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I'll, I'll let you ping off of that. No, I no, no. no. I think it. that's, I, I love it. I love it. And I think that that's, the, you know, the challenge, right? I mean, I always, this is what I tell my students all the time, right? It's like, okay, you know, we can talk all these great um theories and, and philosophies and, oh, I stand for what's right and I stand, but right. But at the end of the day, we're all still beholden and tethered to, you know, capitalism. And in capitalism, the lights got to stay on, the rent's got to get paid, the mortgage has got to get paid, um, people's jobs, right? I mean, all these things are still a reality and, and it, it, it continues to not amaze me, but just kind of just reinforce the idea and notion that this is, this is the world that we live in. Right. I mean, it's like, that's the biggest, I mean, I've even had, you know, folks come after this show, right. And be like, how can this person be at a Christian university and, and, you know, uh, you know, have a, such a podcast and this is, um, you know, so I think what's, what's interesting to me, especially as a communications scholar, right. It's like, you have all this stuff around First Amendment and, you know, alt writers will go in about how they're being silenced and, you know, the white male is being is losing uh, their 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 stand in society place. They're being erased. That's the that's the terminology that's being said. Um, I'd be curious just uh, just for your own like uh, your engagement, like what what has been like some of the feedback? Have you gotten emails? Have you gotten threats? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, you know, cause it's real. I mean, you talk about this, this divide. I mean, it's like, you're right. I mean, it's just stuff is just, is out there now. It's not even hidden, which is, you know, on one end great, but then the other end, it's just like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, there is some, um, in, in a, in a very real way, I think that it's a positive development that it's not hidden. Right. Right. Um, because there is an opportunity there to to look at it for what it is and hopefully to make some changes. Um, it's incredibly distressing to live through. <laughs> um, it's yeah. stressful to uh, see the things that are said. Um, you know, I the film has been, like we've spent the last year on the film festival circuit and doing um, various screenings at colleges and things like that. And when people actually see the film, by and large, the feedback has been positive. Now, there's one caveat to that, and I'm going to, I'll get to that in just a second. But by and large, it's been positive. Um, most of the, the pushback that I get is with people who just refuse to even see it. And they refuse to see it quite often because they will say, Muslims and Christians don't worship the same God. You know, based on your title, I think that's what the film is about. And therefore, I don't even have to 
engage in this conversation, right? Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. The theological, we don't agree theologically. We don't know what the theology is in your film, mind you. <laughs> we haven't watched it, so we don't yeah. know actually what you say. But based on your title, there's a big assumption that... Um, you know, that I don't agree. And so I don't have to engage or I'm free then to, um, you know, say on social media, social media, I, I, I frequently have people that go off about that. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, I, I mean, I can't even, I, it's just stupid stuff, right? Twitter, this, and it's always about the theology. That's what people always talk about. And, and my, my response is always, that's not actually the point of the film. The film actually is an exploration of, um, of systemic racism, really. I mean, that's what the story is about, but you have to be willing to listen to it to understand it. Um, which leads me to the caveat that I've had. I think most people respond very well to the film when they see it, but part of what I delve into is the um, how what happened to Larisha and her dismissal from Wheaton, um, how that connects to what is happening with white evangelical support of Trump. So I have had some feedback that I've unfairly conflated evangelicalism with white nationalism. So, um, and, you know, I've had people that have sent me articles like, you know, here's research on why evangelicals actually voted for Trump and, you know, like how my analysis of that is wrong. Um, you know, to which I respond, I mean, A, I read all those articles when I did the research for the film. But B, I live in Louisiana. I don't need to do research on this. <laughs> <laughs> and I live right. in North Carolina. And guess what? I have plenty of relatives. The majority of my relatives voted for Trump, right? Yeah. Um, I, I have a neighbor, if I look out my office window right now, I have a neighbor who drives an $85,000 truck and it has a bumper sticker on it that says gun owners for Trump. So, I mean... These are my neighbors. These are my relatives. <laughs> They're some of them are friends. Um, they're my fellow alumni. I, I I don't need to read articles from the New York Times on why they're doing what they're doing, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, but having said that, you know, I don't we're not always aware of why we do what we do. So there's some analysis that I think some people are engaged in, you know, trying to figure out how do we get here. Um, and then there are some people that just don't want to, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that race plays into this. They don't want to, um, they don't want to un unpeel the layers of the onion, right? Because at the, at, if you unpeel the layers of the onion, then it might disrupt the power that you have it might put you in a position of needing to change the way you're doing things. And I mean, kind of to your point, like I'm, I'm 49 and I find myself sort of increasingly, I think like you, like it's not that it's a surprise that this is the way the world works, but there is this like 
dang, like that's really the way things work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. People just don't want to, you know, even PBS, it's about money and donors in power and, Mm. and people don't want to let that go. They don't. Right. 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 (laughs) Right. Right. Wow. That's deep. I like that. That's, 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 um, it's fascinating. I mean, and, and yeah, what are, I, I, I guess is, 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 you know, as somebody who's, who's lived and, and studied a lot of this stuff and not only just that, I mean, but you know, as a black man living, I mean, I was born in Texas, um, at a time when, you know, it wasn't until I was in the sixth grade that, you know, we got textbooks that said, you know, the South actually lost the civil war. Um, and so, you know, that, that legacy, right. Still lives on, but at least at some point there was still some, I don't want to say shame, but at least there was some backdoor about it. It was just kind of like, all right, whatever. But now it's just like, Hey, you know, I, I, and, and, and I've got students, you know, white students in class who say, you know, it's just like, I, you know, I can't be silenced and we're, you know, we're, we're not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not gonna be quiet anymore. You know, white folks are oppressed more than black people ever have. And so it's like, I'm just like, okay, all right. And, you know, and as an educator, it's kind of like, all right, I want to be unbiased, but as a black man, I'm saying, all right, I, maybe I just need to find a new profession. I mean, I just need a gardener or something like that. Um, but but you know, actually, to, but to comment on that, I mean, it, it's this idea of being silenced is is really interesting, right? Because, oh, yeah. Um, and, and it's something I've thought a lot about this past year, actually, as I've been traveling around with the film. Um, though it started actually when I started working on Gangland, which was a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, the, the whose story is being told and who's telling that story is really political, right? Right. It's, it's a power. It, there is power in the telling of someone's story. There's power in having your story told. Um, and we all have a story, right? Yeah. I yes. mean, White people have stories too, and and their story is not all the same, right? <laughs> there are stories of wealth. There are stories of abject poverty. Those, there is a variety of stories, but I think that in our in our culture, it has only been a certain group of people whose stories have been told. Yes, in the past fifty years. Um, and I'll tell you a little story of when I became aware of that for the first time when I was working on Gangland. So I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina. Good. You, you, that just, and you, you leading right into the next question I already had. So well, this okay, is beautiful. Good. All right. Love All right. it. Come on. I hope you don't mind. I'm running with this. Come so, on. Oh, um, run. Yeah. So, um, I was working on Gangland and the, the production company that produced that was based in Chicago. All right. I was the showrunner, which is basically sort of like an executive producer role um, and basically is heading up the series. And I lived in Charlotte. And so I would travel, you know, from Charlotte to Chicago and from Charlotte to New York, which is where History Channel is based. So I worked from my home and um, and I was, you know, I was like 
having babies and I'm like, you know, I'm like a mom. And so, I mean, it was a very (laughs) funny role to be in because I would literally be on the soccer field watching my, you know, son who was around four at the time playing soccer and I'm having conversations about gangs on the phone. <laughs> and so there was always this kind of very, like, I felt always conspicuous, you know? Because um, I'm talking about murders and drugs and all sorts of awesome stuff. So, yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> and I'm the only mom on the field doing that. <laughs> that was really cool. So, but I always felt a little, um, I don't know, I felt conspicuous. I don't know if, ashamed isn't the right word, but I felt conspicuous. Like it was a little like, I don't know, you know, it was, it was just an odd thing to tell people. It's like, yeah, you know, I'm doing this series, Gangland, that's wildly popular. It was at the time, it was the, like the fifth rate, highest rated series in the History Channel's network. But here's my point. These stories hadn't been told before, right? Nobody at the time had gone to Nobody, meaning a major network, I'm not saying nobody, right? but a major network had never put out a series that went and told the stories of gang members. And yeah. Yeah. Of course, I hadn't really thought about it in this term. I mean, I really, like, I just, you know, I just been trying to make a living and do my job, right? Yeah. So it all, it all hit me, though. I went to my dentist's office one day, and this is, like, the whitest dentist on the planet. So it is, like, <laughs> Like he, okay. He paints golf courses for a hobby. <laughs> so, nice. Nice. Yeah, yeah. So when I, I mean, and it was always a little like, wow, like this is super upper scale, you know. And so when you go in, they will take notes on who you are and what kind of work you're doing and if you have kids and stuff like that. So then when you come back in six months to a year, they're like, Hey, Linda, we see you're a television producer. You know what I mean? Like then they can follow up on it. So it's great. It's great customer service. Um, so I went in for my checkup and the dentist did this. So he sat down and he looked at the notes and then he said, so tell me what television series you're working on right now. And I said, oh, I'm doing this series called Gangland, you know, for the History Channel. And he got this funny look on his face and he said, huh, gangland. That <laughs> oh, no. No, he goes, that sounds interesting. Oh, no. Super dismissive. You're right. Right. I can already and tell. I, and I looked at him and I something in me, it, it clicked. And I didn't say it to him. But I was so offended. And I and what I wanted to say to him was maybe you should watch it and learn some stories about people whose lives are completely different from yours in your beautiful office painting golf courses. You know, I mean, I was so angry at him and it, and I got really defensive about the series and it was it was a shift internally with me where I think I started to realize at that point like these stories matter these because mm. <laughs> everybody's story matters and it matters even when they're poor or they're black or you know whatever it is that you've decided or they're muslim right or, i mean like you've decided that you don't care about their story 
but their stories do matter. And there's there and and for a storyteller to say, I value your story and I'm willing to share it. And a storyteller can be an independent filmmaker like I am. It could be a network. It can be whomever. But there is real power that you give to somebody when you do that, right? And um, I don't know. It, it's interesting for for white people to feel like they are being silenced because they've had the microphone for a really long time, right? And it's okay to actually give somebody else the mic at some point. <laughs> <laughs> now have a chance to say something. And not only do you have an opportunity to say it, but I'm willing to listen mm-hmm. to the story that you're sharing. I'm willing to listen to what your experience is. And so, you know, one of the things that was awesome about Gangland was that I quickly realized, wow, these gang members could, like some of them could could straight up be CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, yeah. right? Yeah. Like the, the crime syndicates that they organize are fantastic. Like they are really yeah. smart people. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm not condoning what they do, but on the other hand, it's like, yeah, I, I get it. Like if they had been born in a different circumstance, who knows what they could have done, right? Because right. they're smart. They're smart people. Like they, they, you know, so anyway. <laughs> No, I am glad you said that. And I mean, I think one of the things that I appreciated about Gangland, um, you know, Stacey, even Stacey Peralta's work, you know, on on looking at, you know, L.A.'s gangs um, made in America was that it humanized what has for so long been a a, a monster. Right. This thing that's out there. Speaking of gangs. Right. It's like, you know, this thing that and I, you know, I grew up in in that environment. Right. I grew up. You know, in an environment of, especially during the 80s, you know, it's just like, you know, gangs weren't necessarily looked at. They weren't humanized. They were just these monsters that were killing each other and they needed to be dealt with. And so um, I think, you know, that was, like you said, the story. The story is so important. In fact, I just uh, um, put out a whole uh, episode on story and, you know, and listening to story and the importance of that. And I think that's part of, you know, again, what this is. And so, yes, Gangland was that. And again, for those of you listening, I'll, I'll put links in the show notes. You can go check it out if you haven't ever seen <laughs> Gangland on, on uh, yeah. And my mom loved it. I mean, my mom, she's, I think she still watches reruns and whatnot. So, I mean, I, yeah, we definitely fans. Let me ask this then. Um, what, what, what was some of the mechanics then of, of, of getting this documentary together? Speaking of stories, I know, right. Documentaries is, is about story. It's about this kind of narrative and weaving. I mean, how, what did you have to do to, to, to really, to get this to, to happen? Did, did you meet Larissa somewhere? Did you meet Doc Hawk somewhere? Did she come to you? I mean, how did, how did it come together? Yeah. Um, no, I had never met Larisha before we started filming. So, um, when I realized that I felt like this sort of desperately needed to be a documentary, um, the first thing I had to do was to raise a little bit of seed money. And so I went to some friends from Wheaton who, who have money Mm -hmm. (laughs) basically said, would you give me some seed funding, you know, to start this? And they said, yes. And um, that I wouldn't have done it without Larisha's cooperation because I mean, the story is, it's her story, you know? Um, So I, 
I emailed her, I sent a cold email and basically said, this is who I am. Well, she had a friend from college who um, was having to check her email for her because it was such a, she was in such a firestorm, you know, like check her email. And so the friend from college responded and said, can you send me some samples of your work? So I did, and she watched them, and she basically advised Larisha to do it and said, you know, this is who this woman is, and I think you would like her work, and I think you should do this. So Larisha said yes without having ever talked to me. So, hmm. um, so, and, and there's a funny little story where, um, you know, driving, I, I, she was in Houston because, um, she had a family member actually who was getting cancer treatment <laughs> in the middle of everything going on. Wow. And she happened to be in Houston for that. And we decided let's set up our first interview there because it was important to me to start filming as soon as possible because I wanted to, to be able to document, um, you know, document it as it was taking place as much as possible. Right. So this was probably about halfway through the two month controversy from start to finish. It took about two months for her to wear the hijab and end up losing her job. So I, this was about halfway through that. Okay. So I was driving to Houston and from Baton Rouge and it's a four hour drive. And because I'd never met her, I remember thinking to myself, what am I going to do if I get there? And she's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Come on. you know, cause she could be. And like, you know, I'm like, what if I walk in and I'm like, Oh, that's why they're trying to fire you. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Okay. Um, All right. And of course, you know, as a filmmaker, I'm like, I can roll with that. I can, I can make that work. It's going to be a different film, but I can, I can roll with that. So I was relieved when I, when I got to Houston and did my first interview with her, um, you know, immediately, I knew she's not, she's not only not crazy, but she's an incredibly lovely person inside and out to use a cliche. Um, but it's true. You know what I mean? She's wonderful. She has a wonderful spirit about her. And so I started filming with her that day. Our first interview lasted for four hours Wow! (laughs) and we still didn't make it through everything. Um, and that first interview was also done before she, because it was done before she, ultimately lost her job at Wheaton. It was mm-hmm. done before she signed the confidentiality agreement with Wheaton. That, uh-huh. um, so there is some information that she discusses in that interview that she can't discuss now okay. um, publicly. But, um, but yeah, but that's, that's what happens when you start filming in the middle of something, you, you can get things like that. So, right. Um, so yeah, so I filmed with her basically for the next um, next two and a half years off and on. And, um, I would film for a couple of days. I'd follow her around. I go to Chicago, catch up with her, find out what was happening. And then, um, you know, I had to raise money. I had to raise grant money and stuff like that in the process. And so, um, you know, it, it, it was interesting because, because it was a two and a half year span, things, things change. Things change not only in her life, but things change in the world as a result. So um, we would have these long periods of maybe six months where I wasn't really doing anything. 
Um, and then I raise a little money and I check back. So in the middle of that time, Donald Trump was elected. Um, and, you know, everything kind of all hell started breaking loose. <laughs> yeah. In, in the United States. And so, you know, one of the very last shoots, it may have been the last shoot that I did with her. I can't remember but I went to Chicago to film with her in her apartment. And um, it's the day that the Charlottesville riots. Oh, yeah. And so Heather Heyer was, you know, murdered by a white supremacist in a car at those riots. And that was taking place while I was filming with Marisha. And so it was really... um, it was pretty fascinating as a storyteller to see in real time how what happened to her really was, it was a harbinger of what was to come, right? And then to film with her in the middle of like, okay, all of those um, seeds that were there when I started filming, they're all bearing fruit and you can see exactly what it is. Wow. I, yeah. So, let me, well, let me ask this real quick. Um, it, work, working with non-disclosure agreements and all that stuff. I mean, how does how does that work if somebody tells you something prior to them signing that? Does is it just all inclusive? I mean, I'd be curious as a filmmaker. Like, what what is that? Yeah, how does that break down? I my understanding is that I was sort of grandfathered into the agreement because they knew it was public knowledge that I had started filming with her. Okay. And so, yeah, they had to, um, moving forward, I try to be respectful of um, not asking her things that I thought might get her in trouble. Um, but that wasn't actually that difficult because, um, you know, the, the, the story, once, once she leaves Wheaton, the story is kind of like, well, what's the fallout? What, what happened? Where does she end up? Where does life take her? What are the struggles that she had? And that was all stuff that, you know, that she's able to discuss. Okay. Okay. So it didn't hamper me too much. You know, of course, in hindsight, I'm like, oh, I wish I had asked this, that, or the other when she could have talked about it. But, um, but you know, this, the story is not, um, it's not really about Wheaton. I mean, it's, it took place at Wheaton. Wheaton has a special place in sort of the history of evangelicalism. And so it matters that it took place there, but it really could have happened anywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, And so it doesn't, that's not really the focus of the film. The, the, The focus of the film is more, what was she trying to do by presenting her, her ideas of embodied solidarity? Um, you know, what is, what does that look like in her life? How did that drive what she did? And then what is the cost that she ultimately ultimately played? And so the analysis of, of sort of white evangelicalism and what that looks like and the context was more sort of understanding. Um, it was just understanding why it happened. Like what are trying to, trying to get a handle on, why was it so offensive to so many people that a black woman put on a hijab and said that Muslims and Christians worship the same God? Like yeah. what, what was that triggering in people? Yes. 
Yes, 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 yes. I, I, I find that fascinating. So, I mean, in my intercultural comm class, you know, I spend, you know, the first course five weeks, we engage with, you know, all the basics and stuff. But then I reserve kind of the last five weeks, of course, to get into some more specifics. And so this this week we're actually looking at um, intercultural religious conflict. And um, this, you know, this, of course, came up and um, being a school that we don't uh, the student body doesn't have to be a Christian. We have so, you know, my classes, I'll have you know, Muslim uh, Sikhs, uh, atheists. I mean, so, you know, now granted, those are smaller numbers. Those are definitely a a minority. Um, But it's also, you know, a cause of the tension that we have at our place, but that's for another discussion. But it came up like, okay, so what about the Abrahamic faiths? Like, where where are we at with that? And I've, you know, I've said this publicly and, and, and all that good stuff. I mean, I have... I've made my peace with all the Abrahamic faiths. I don't think any of them are necessarily a hundred percent correct and necessarily a hundred percent wrong. And I, and, and mm-hmm. I do believe that in the end, at the end of the day, I mean, Jesus was a Jew. He wasn't even a Christian to begin with. So, right. <laughs> um, you know, and so I, you know, and, but this came up and, you know, and you can see in some of the more students, right. That have kind of been raised in some of these things, just the uncomfortability of, of, of what that means translate that now into somebody who's a donor they got the library named after their family because they donated all this money and you know it's like when i was at azusa pacific university oh my gosh that was such a horrible time out and you know in socal and stuff it was like you know people 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 would give all these lump sums of money and making people go to chapel right like that was like a thing and meanwhile, you have, of course, right, half the student body is checked out. Nothing is really being engaged there. But my point to all this is that this feels like we've just bottled God into this corner and said, this is the, these are the only places that you can go, God. Um, right. When I think about something as big as God, something that has created something that is well beyond my my any of our knowledge, right? To create a world, to create humanity, and then then to say this is as far as you can go, and 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 by no means can you help those people. They're gonna burn in hell. Right, right, <laughs> right. No, it's 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 um, yeah, it's fascinating, honestly, looking at people grapple with this. Um, and looking at the certainty that a lot of people have when it comes to understanding God, um, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, there's so much to say about that. Um, it scares people and, and that the fear in in some ways I'm almost, I'm, I'm, somewhat sympathetic to that because I understand that it feels like if you say we have sameness there, then I'm going to lose, lose something that's very important to me. Um, Mm. you know what I mean? And, and like, I, you know, I don't know. I think like my dad is in his eighties now and we were talking about something one time and he made the comment, he said, well, if that's true, then I've spent my whole life. I've wasted my whole life. Ooh. You know All what right. I mean? Yeah. Come and on. I thought, and and it's, I've never forgotten that. I don't remember actually what we were talking about, ironically, but I've never forgotten that statement because I realized, oh, there's deep fear in saying if, if I give an inch on this, if I give an inch on this 
belief that I have about God or this theological belief, then I've wasted all of this time believing in the wrong thing. And I think that that's really, it's scary and it's painful. And, and I'm, and I get that, right. It's like, yeah, yeah that sucks actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It does suck. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> You know, and you see like people like there's a, you know, there, there's a big ex evangelical movement that's taking place right now. And um, I follow a lot of that on Twitter and, and it's sad. It's sad seeing people um, really struggling with feeling like they've wasted years. They've wasted opportunities, you know, buying into you know, whether it's purity culture or whatever it is that they bought into, right? So so from a big systemic perspective, I, I think that that's part of what is at play. Um, but what I'm not sympathetic to Come on. is our willingness to erase other people, like literally willing to kill them, right? Because we disagree with them. And thus it's extremism. And so you would have a lot of Christians that would point at Islam and say, well, that's what's happening in Islam. That is, yes, there are, there are extremist Muslims, right? Yeah. And that is what's happening, but there, to be clear, are plenty of, of extremist Christians and there's a long history of that. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Um, yes. That hasn't started like a year ago, right? Um, that, you know, if you take it back to, um, if you take it back to the Reformation, actually, so like evangelicalism comes out of, like, if you trace its roots back, it's going to go back to the Reformation, which of course is when, um, you know, Protestantism kind of developed and split off from the Catholic church. So, um, Bear with me. I'm just a yeah. rabbit hole, but no, I think come on. it's relevant. So, um, you know, when Martin Luther tried to reform the Catholic Church, um, you know, the Catholic Church was not having it, basically, and they exile him. And so he ends up kind of starting what becomes the Protestant Church. So as Martin Luther's ideas, though, kind of give birth you know, his ideas of like reading the Bible for yourself and not relying on the priests to interpret it as that took place and people are doing that. Well, his wild ideas, um, then people take it further. So the Anabaptists come out of that. And so the Anabaptists are, you know, the forebears of what's like the Baptist church now. So this, this all, what I'm getting at is that the Anabaptists came up with the idea that based on their reading of scripture, that infant baptism was not, um, was not scriptural, that adults needed to make a decision about whether they were following Jesus and then they would be fully immersed, right? Well, infant baptism was not only a cornerstone of the church, I mean, this, this had been happening forever, like since the Christian church began, but that's how the census was taken in towns. You know, people were baptized and that's kind of when they became a person in the eyes of the government. I'm grossly simplifying this. I'm not a historian, um, but 
but my point is that this was so horrifying that even Martin Luther was like, what? You know, this is a crazy idea. <laughs> like you can't, like he didn't start out to get rid of infant baptism. He just started out to do some, some good reforms in the Catholic church. So what's funny is that, you know, the Catholics hate Martin Luther. Martin Luther <laughs> ended up hating the Anabaptist, right? <laughs> but he's all like, these people are crazy. You know, like we don't, we shouldn't do, um, you know, this full immersion idea is crazy. All this to say the reformers themselves, the people that followed Martin Luther, um, tortured and executed the Anabaptist. And one of the things that they did was they would drown them. And they would say, basically, you want to be immersed. Well, here you go, buddy. And they would laugh while they drowned them. Like, you want to be immersed in your baptism, we're going to drown you. So that was 500 years ago. But that's the roots of how extreme is that? I mean, you think about that now, and that's like crazy, right? Yeah. But then, but then you look at the history of, so the Anabaptists like fled. I mean, it's part of the reason they came to the United States, right? Was religious freedom so that they could not be drowned for wanting to be baptized as adults. But I think what you see like in the DNA of some, um, what you see in our, in our, in the evangelical DNA is this willingness to eradicate people who don't agree with us theologically, and, and I see it, I mean, pulling all this full circle, I mean, you see it like this happened in slavery, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we're going to use our theology as an excuse to literally get rid of your body, right? We see that in, you know, Jim Crow laws, right? Like all of this, like, well, God doesn't want us, you know, intermingling with the races and you know what I mean? Like, it's always this sort of theological belief that justifies literally getting rid of somebody's existence, exterminating them, annihilating them. And, and it's interesting to me that interested isn't it's interesting isn't the right word. It's, it's horrifying to me, but it's interesting to me as I sort of analyze where this came from, as I see people's response to Larisha Hawkins, that there are people that would be fine if she just didn't exist mm-hmm. because they find her, what she did was offensive to them. And because they can pin a theological belief to it and say, well, she's wrong about whether Muslims and Christians worship the same God, um, even though they're Abrahamic faiths, she's wrong. <laughs> Yeah. That as a result, they really don't care what happens to her as a result. It's it's shocking, you know? Yes. Yes. And I think that's what gets me um, and what I'm wrestling with, um, you know, as a man of faith, you know, who's married and got a kid and and all that, you know, the whole jazz. Right. It's like, OK, what <laughs> what does that look like in this day and age? Right. Where. um somebody can be so consumed with their own ideological construct that they're just like, yeah, you don't need to exist. I don't, I don't really need to hear any. And and rather than just saying, I don't know, I disagree, but whatever. It's like, no, I really want you exterminated, which is always right. A red flag for, uh Oh, (laughs) so what's coming next. And so anyways, I mean, that's, 
something to get off on. Uh, wow. Yeah, sorry. And if you need to edit that out, that's fine. I know that's a little bit of a rabbit hole, but I'm I not editing you know, none. <laughs> but I think that it's like, I, to me, it's fascinating, right? Because I yes. think that I think the DNA is there. Yes. And so going back to some of the criticism I get about the film occasionally, like it's that I've unfairly conflated evangelicalism and white nationalism. It's like, nah. <laughs> right. You can trace, you can do the work and trace the roots. You just have to be paying attention yep. to, um, you know, and it doesn't, and it has nothing to do, by the way, with people's intent necessarily. Right. Exactly. Like, if I if I mistreat you, but say I didn't mean to mistreat you, it may be absolutely true that I didn't mean to mistreat you, um, but that doesn't mean that the impact isn't there. So, um, you know, you're married, right? So I, this is one of the things you learn in marriage, right? Like, like if my if my husband says when you say blah blah blah, it makes me feel this way. You know, my for years, I would just be like, well, I didn't mean to make you feel that way. Well, whether I meant to make them feel that way isn't exactly the point, right? <laughs> so <laughs> when you love somebody, what do you do? I mean, eventually you say, I, I hear what you are saying. I hear that this makes you feel this way. Um, and love, a loving posture towards somebody says, I may not understand why you feel that way, but I will seek to understand it. And I will at least listen to what you're saying. And mm-hmm. this goes back, I mean, pulling all this full circle, you go back to telling stories. Well, I mean, we not only need to tell the stories of other people, but we need to be willing to listen to the stories. So sometimes, you know, this, sense that, well, people are, you know, when you get tired of somebody saying something over and over again, I think you have to ask yourself, well, why do they still have to say this? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I bring that up in class a lot when students are like, why are we still talking about race? Why? Because because you're not listening. Maybe (laughs) if we listened and did something differently, we wouldn't have to keep talking about it, but because it hasn't been addressed and then what do you do when you get frustrated? You talk more loudly, right? You're right. Yeah, because right. you're yelling because you're not listening to me. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. Um, you know, like listening and having curiosity about other people's experiences is incredibly important. It just is. And it's the key to, I think if we did that, we would experience more peace ultimately, because it's an an act of love. It's an act of love to just listen to somebody. And even if you don't agree with them, even if you don't understand to say, I care about you enough that I want to hear what you're saying. I at least want to hear it. Right. You know, I want to hear you out. So I get mad when people won't even watch the film. I have to admit that that frustrates me. (laughs) I don't care if you watch it and you don't like it. Like that doesn't bother me, but it's, but, but you know what? My own church here in Baton Rouge, um, I refuse to engage with the film, like literally refuse to watch it. <laughs> oh, see, and that's just, exactly, that's just exhausting. It's totally exhausting. <laughs> and to have a gem of somebody who's connected like to the industry and to have that person sitting in your congregation. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I, because at the end of the day, it's like why I vehemently disagree uh, with alt-right folks and extreme right conservative, whatever, I'm still not saying we should kill them. 
<laughs> I'm not saying yeah, that we should exterminate them. Right. No, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's extremism to go. I mean, you don't want to be on either side of that, right? Right. Oh, absolutely. Mean, yeah. And, and it's really important and it, it's really important as we become so polarized because the, the anger level on both sides is um, it's really high and it's really hostile, hostile and it's a really dangerous place to be as a society. Yes. Um, it, you know, and it's hard not to be that way. It's understandable, but it's, but it's really important that, um, that you don't get to the point where you want to kill somebody because you disagree with what they're saying. <laughs> it's really important. I, I suppose you sh- I shouldn't have to say that, but it, but is, but it, but it kind of needs to be said, right? <laughs> wow. Yes, exactly. And that's, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I think, and I'll say this, and I know our, t- our time is nigh, but I'm I'm loving uh, this conversation. I mean, I think that you know, as, as somebody who's black, and and I love, um, I don't know if you caught um, uh, Eddie Cloud, Professor Doctor Reverend Eddie Cloud, uh, on uh, I forget what network he was on, but this was right after the the last mass shooting um, mm. that we had, and he was, you know, he was talking about like, you know, as 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 black folk, you know, we've we haven't had, you know, the privilege of the narrative that said, you know, America is great or that America is, you know, this right. this great and wonderful nation where, you know, we, we, we weren't raised with that narrative and stuff. And it's like, you know, are we going to take this time to finally address some of the real issues? And I brought this up in a large meeting, faculty meeting the other day. I was just like, are we actually going to address the issues, you know, people talking about all the kind of the side things. Yeah, of course, pay is important. Yes, of course, benefits are important. But are we actually going to address that you can actually count the amount of ethnic minorities that are on 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 faculty out of 160? You can count on one hand how many of them are left. Are we going to address that or are we just going to just keep talking about some of these these other things, which are important? But yeah. are we just going to just keep, you know, going on? And so. Wow, I am excited for this uh, this film to hit. Um where can folks find you? What do you, what do you got going on next? What's, uh, what, uh, you know, how can, how, how can folks get this stuff screened where, where they're at? Um, yeah. So a couple of things we are airing on PBS affiliates. So check, um, check your local listings, but also if people follow us on social media, I, I am, um, kind of religious about updating <laughs> opportunities people have to see the film. So um, all of our social media is at Same God Film. So that's Same God Film for Twitter, Same God Film for Facebook, etc. Um, and Instagram, which I'm not great about updating. Um, but Facebook, I'm really good about, and I try and stay on top of it on Twitter as well. Um So we will be airing on PBS and then we in February are hoping to do a theatrical event of some sort. So I have a distributor and we're working on pulling it together. And then probably in March, the film will be available on um, iTunes and other digital sort of platforms so that it's more accessible. So we're really in a process of starting to roll out the film on a national level for the first time. So it will be easier than it has been for people to actually see it. Um, But if people would like to host a screening at their university or at their church or their mosque or, you know, whatever the organization is, um, I would direct them to my website, which is same God film. 
www.thisisbeautifulgift.com. And we actually have a screening request form and um, you fill out like a form and I kind of give like, you know, what the, what the rates are for screening the film. And then if they would like for me to come or for Dr. Hawkins to come, then that's also a possibility. So excellent. Excellent. For all those of you listening in your Jeep or your Benzo or your Nissan sitting on Lorenzo's, I'll put this uh, all in the show notes of whitehodgepodcast.com in case you just can't, couldn't write all that down. Calm down. Don't be crashing into anything. Uh, whitehodgepodcast.com. This will all be in the show notes. Uh, this is something that, you know, I want to help promote uh, as well. And so uh, this, this is, this is, for me, I mean, I, I love documentaries. I think they, they tell amazing stories. They, work hand in hand as an educator they work hand in hand with like the research and the literature uh when done well and this is a very well done uh film and it's a story like you said that that has needed to be told and so thank you for taking the time to to, to put this you know put, to put this together i mean this is this is amazing thank you thank you so much you know it's been um it has been an honor and that's that's the truth to to tell dr hawkins story um, it's certainly not the definitive narrative of her life, but um, to even, you know, the fact that she allowed me into her world to to share some of this um, is a tremendous honor. I mean, she's a really awesome woman. She is. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. Well, big shout out to uh, Brother Stephen, uh, who uh, connected us, you and me, Linda, for yeah. This 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 was great, uh, folks. The documentary is "Same God." Uh, it's it's coming to PBS. I'm talking about later this year. Um, it is about Doc Hawk, and uh, if you haven't gained anything from this podcast, go see the film before y'all make judgment calls and say, it's, oh, it's, "Why are we listening? Why are we why do we need to see it? Why do I need to go see it? Go see it, and then then we can actually have an informed conversation rather yeah. than an ignorant one." <laughs> um, Linda, thank you so much for taking time today and, and coming out with all the things that you got going on. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure.